Well, this is the new activist. It's good to see you. Good to be heard by you, I suppose would be more accurate. My name is Eddie. I am one of the hosts of this show, and we are deep in pre-production for season two. Really, really excited about the stories that we get to hear. I mean, it's it's going to be incredible. Some of the people, as always, you're going to know. Some of them you won't. But the opportunities that we are having to learn from folks in our world is uh, a real privilege. Enough about that. We'll talk more about that later. As we put together these interviews, as you know, the show is commuter length, so we try to keep it to somewhere around 30 minutes. But the conversations that we get to have in in preparation for those shows are sometimes 45 minutes to two hours long, and we have to cut out a lot of things. To that end, we thought we would put together a little show called More With. It's not that clever a name. <laughs> I didn't really workshop that around. I just thought of it right now. <laughs> so here it is, More With. But uh, these More With shows, we're just going to kind of hear some snippets of things that didn't make it into the final show, but are no less incredibly interesting. The first segment is going to be from, appropriately, Eugene Cho. Eugene was our very first guest on our very first show. He was extremely gracious about appearing on a show that no one at that point had ever heard of. Eugene is the lead pastor of Quest Church, which is, as I've said, a multicultural, multi-generational, and great church. He is also the founder of One Day's Wages, a grassroots movement of people and stories and actions that come together to alleviate extreme global poverty. Eugene shared a lot in episode 001 about his story and his journey what is hard about being an activist, but uh, now he's going to share a bit more about his faith and has it always been intertwined with justice, as well as um, his thoughts on on social media. So here is Nikki Toyama-Sito giving us just a little bit more with Eugene Cho. Have you always, has your faith always been intertwined with justice? You know, that's a great question, and I'm not quite sure. I think it was all one large pot. Okay. Even though, you know, I did not become a follower of Christ until the age of 18. So my parents were believers, but they were, I think, more kind of social, cultural believers. When they immigrated, the church was the place you went to for social services. But my great-grandfather was one of the first people, first believers in his small town outside of a larger city called Pyongyang which is now the capital of North Korea. So back when my parents grew up, there was only one Korea. Yeah. Um, So both my parents were born in what is now called North Korea. They share incredibly vivid, horrendous stories of needing to flee south as a result of the persecution for being followers of Christ, but also when communism began to rear its head and influence. And, you know, even yesterday, I'm here in D.C., and I came here with my father, and uh, we went for a long walk at the mall, and we saw the Lincoln Memorial, and I had actually forgotten that there's a Korean War memorial there, a beautiful memorial, and I did not, I was taken back by my father's response, and he just sat Mm -hmm. there, he wept a little bit, Mm -hmm. and I think he needed to say thank you to someone, so he went to the local park ranger the local ranger who was there and just started talking with him and to say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Mm. Again, not to glorify the war, to glorify military, but just to acknowledge the fact that uh, he experienced so much hardship and poverty 
and acknowledges people that, you know, took it upon themselves to say, we want to help, we want to do something. Yeah. So, you know, but I became a follower at the age of 18. And even when I became a follower at the age of 18, there were things, I mean, I just, I've always cared for people. Yeah. And I've always learned that something was not right with the world. One of my favorite books reading, uh, one of my favorite books growing up as a teenager was um, Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> and, you know, there's the image of Holden Caulfield. He's saving these children with the mm. basket that are falling off the cliff. Mm. And that has always resonated with me, which is the reason why I think I have struggled with the savior complex. It's kind of ingrained within me. But it was then becoming a follower of Christ and reading the scriptures, you know, from front cover to back cover several times, and then really studying and being immersed in the life and teachings of Jesus where it just made sense, which is why when I started going to church regularly and I saw people fragmenting, disconnecting, isolating justice apart from discipleship, I thought that was weird. And so in some ways, I struggled in the church. I felt like an outcast because I kept asking questions like, you know, why are women always secondary or second tier in our church? Why can't they even at least make announcements here? You know, why aren't we talking about homelessness, blah, blah, blah? And it was always, you know, not always, but oftentimes, hey, you know, good Christians don't ask questions. And, and so, um, but it made sense to me. And I think over the years, uh, it's been encouraging to see the broader church really begin to connect those dots. Um, and what I often tell people um, is that we have to look at justice as part of our worship and part of our discipleship and not something as a fragmented secondary issue. It's not a, you know, as, as I see it, the prayer gathering here, this isn't a prayer gathering. It's really part of our discipleship. Yeah. Uh, when people speak about the, the justice conference, I say it's actually a discipleship conference. Right. And we, we want to encourage people to see it through those lens. Why is it do you think that people separate that out? You know, I think it's, uh, it's a great question. You know, the, the, the metaphor I often tell people is if we were to extract love out of God's character, we would go crazy. That's heretical. How can we speak about God and not speak of God's love? Same thing with grace. The only reason why we're here is because of grace. Same thing with holy or holiness. You know, uh, even though the word holiness is not often spoken about in today's vernacular in the church, you cannot know who God is unless you know of a holy God. And so I asked that same question, is that what happened in that we've extracted justice outside of who God is, God's character, and then called it an agenda, a political thing, a leftist thing, a liberal thing? That's what we've done which is the reason why in the last 20 years, as people have been trying to speak more about justice, what you often hear is, why are you bringing that agenda? That's a liberal thing. That's a side thing. That's not important, but that's what we've done, is that we've somehow extracted that out. And I think it's probably another conversation for another podcast about the dangers of, of theology, that, of our reading of scripture, of theology that can be a little skewed and so in our theology, especially, I think, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, especially in the West, where we saw discipleship kingdom as this very isolated, how do we get as many people into heaven as possible? And that was the only thing. And 
as Christians, salvation is a beautiful, it's a critical part of our understanding and theology. But certainly, it's not the only thing that Jesus espoused in the building of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts about um, what it means to disagree with civility on social media, or what? What are the what are the boundaries of um, conversation on social media, and what are the things that are just not supposed to happen on social media? You know, I hate you, and I dislike you, and hashtag ban Nikki. I, you know. Um, <laughs> I think we're all learning this right now, but I would say it's not even just on social media. I would say we actually need to learn uh, in real life, you know, what it means to engage in healthy, honest dialogue and that we can do it without vilifying, demonizing, otherizing other people. And I think what we do on social media is just a translation of, I think, what we're not able to practice in real life. Is it a bit more extreme on social media? Absolutely. When we're able to hide behind our computer screens or our smartphones, I acknowledge the fact that it's more egregious. But I think it's really a consequence of real life in our natural engagement. Mm. It's what we see on media. It's what we see among politicians. It's what we see among churches and theologians and pastors from different tribes. It's what we see among our parents, maybe among siblings. It's what we see in our churches as well. Yeah. So I would say, you know, we need to practice this. Like, what does it mean when the scripture says, above all things, to put on love, you know, and practically to... You cannot love people if you don't know people. Hmm. We have to get this. In fact, I think we should just ban saying, I love someone if you don't know that person. It's just hard. Hmm. So in real life, if we're called to love people, then we have to learn what it means to know them and know their story, to know their fears and their insecurities, to know their dreams and wishes and and all of that and vice versa. And I think that would bring a certain sobering and a healthy dosage of humanity as well. Hmm. That when we do say this person is created in the image of God, which we as Christians believe in, that every single person, enemy or not, akin to our theology or not, uh, shares in our same convictions or not, they bear the image of God. We begin there and I think it will help us to translate more into healthier, uh, more honoring conversations that don't necessarily dilute our convictions, but we can still do it in a way that preserves the fact that we're still connected in some way or the other. Now, certainly with social media, it's a beast in itself, you know, the fact that we can say things and do things with apparently no consequence, whether it's anonymous emails and anonymous notes. And, you know, I think we have to be very careful, in my opinion. Sometimes a big danger is that for just regular mainstream folks, what we'll end up doing is that there's a bunch of crazies out there. And I I know I just kind of just named and otherized, but I think there's people that are anonymous that are saying just ridiculous things and yet there are, I think, folks that are choosing to use that as the voice and the words of, to then appropriate that, appropriate that to a larger mass of people. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. Westboro Baptist Church, infamous 
for their diatribe, their hate-filled words, their venomous words, toxic words, against so many people, including the LGBTQ community. So I think, A, people need to just say, this is wrong, horrendous. But I also think that folks need to be very careful not to say, this here is an example of the larger Christian church, mm. because it's not. And we can't allow, you know, the uh, very small, it, it's what we see right now that's feeding into Islamophobia. That when we allow the actions of extremists that our Muslim community regularly denounces, and yet people in the mainstream, including, I would say, the mainstream evangelical church say, well, this is the face of Muslims or Islam, we have to then stop and pause and say, everyone, take a breath. This is not the face. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think we have to also be careful that while these things exist, that we choose not to do it, but we don't also make the mistake of then playing into this game where we allow the voices of a few to somehow become the voices of many. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally helpful. Okay. That's really helpful. A topical final thought, to be sure. That was Nikki Toyamasito giving us a little bit more with Eugene Cho. Next up, we're going to hear more from Andy Crouch. Andy, uh, his episode, episode four, was one of our most... Um, most talked about episodes, I think, is the best way to say it. He is just so thoughtful and dense in his answers that there was a lot of discussion online and just a lot of people, me included, resonated with what Andy had to share. If you haven't listened to episode four with Andy, go back and listen to that. By way of quick reminder, Andy is the executive editor of Christianity Today. He's also been published in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, etc. He is the author of many books, the most recent of which is Strong and Weak, Embracing a Life of Love, Risk, and True Flourishing. Bethany Wang spent a lot of time chatting with Andy, and here is just a really touching, beautiful story from their conversation. Right. It, that, um, the way you're talking about just these situations of desolation where... And, and there's so much isolation where it, it's hard to see where any hope could come from that. Um, you're talking about it in a, a city, in a geographical context, in a way, in communities of people. But it actually brought to mind um, someone very close in your life that you've written quite a bit about in your new book, Angela. Um, mm. And this story of her life of, I want you to, to tell it, but just yeah. how there it on the surface, on paper, it looks like there's just absolutely huh. no possibility for flourishing. It's total desolation. Can you describe yeah. Angela for us? Yeah, I remember um, where I was when the phone rang uh, in a hotel room. With, I was with my family on a little trip, and uh, it was my father. And I, I could tell it was him, but he couldn't speak uh, initially. Mm. And finally, when he was able to speak, he said, "There's." He said, "Melinda's had her baby. This is my sister, Melinda." And he said, "But there's something wrong with the baby," and he could barely get the words out. Um, my sister had had her third child, Angela. This was 12 years ago. Um, and uh, uh, my, my sister is, she's amazing. She's fearless, and she's totally countercultural. At least 
from the cultural that I the culture I came from. So this baby was born along with all of her other children in a tub in the living room of their house. <laughs> so the whole family's gathered around. There's a midwife. The baby's born in this little inflatable tub, um, and then the midwife realizes actually um, that's that through a number of signs that this baby is not typical and mm. actually needs the very highest level of care as fast as possible. So as my father called my sister and brother and her husband, my brother-in-law and the midwife were speeding down the country roads to the local hospital. So it took a couple of weeks to figure out actually all that was going on, but it turned out that Angela had trisomy 13 which is a congenital condition where you have three copies of the 13th chromosome in every cell of your body, in Angela's case, every cell. And um, this really, it, it sort of creates this set of confusing instructions for a human body because you've got sort of too many instructions. Instead of two chromosomes that work together, you've got three. And so really everything in Angela's body didn't work the way it was meant to. Her heart didn't work the way it was meant to. Her skull wasn't fused the way it was meant to be. As she grew, she didn't have really uh, eyesight the way you would expect in a typical child, mm. didn't have hearing, didn't have cognition or comprehension. And the first week that they were in, in the hospital, uh, one doctor told my brother-in-law, this condition is incompatible with life. Mm. And in fact, half of the children who are diagnosed with trisomy 13 uh, die um die before their, uh, sorry, well, many die in, in utero and then half die in the first week of life. So the amazing thing is Angela did not die in the first week of life. And the doctors said, you really should just leave her here. She'll gradually decline and die. Um, but my sister and brother-in-law said, no, we want to bring her home. And if she's going to die, let's have her die at home. She was born in our living room. <laughs> let's have her die in our living room. Tell us how we can care for her. Mm. So they brought her home after a few weeks. And Angela kept living for 11 years and mm. grew and became a part of our family and never could speak, never could in any way we could see recognize us. Mm. Uh, maybe had some recognition of her parents. It's really hard to say. Wow. Couldn't feed herself, couldn't provide for herself. She eventually got to the point where she could, she could sit up. Um, but... Very, very limited human capacities. And in many ways, the best thing that ever happened in my family in terms of the flourishing that actually came into our family as we had to care for this human being who needed every possible kind of care. Mm. Now, there was nothing easy about it, especially for, obviously, for my sister and I her family. I cannot even imagine, right. My parents... I mean, I can't even imagine how many miles they've put on their car going back and forth between Massachusetts, where they live, and New Hampshire, where my sister lives. But, but Angela brought into our family this kind of intensity of need that actually drew love out of all of us. Wow. And... Mm. Uh, and drew it out of, you know, like, so another child came along, a, a fourth child, Angela's younger sister, my niece, Erin. And Erin loved her older sister. And, and for Erin, this older sister, Angela, was just part of her world, you know? And so along comes this little baby, Erin, who then as she becomes a toddler and Erin's totally typical, you know, just normal kid, um, interacting with Angela and caring for Angela and, and 
watching Angela becomes a huge part of her life as well as the older siblings' lives. And in December, Angela died very suddenly. Not, I don't know that you'd ever say it's unexpected with with trisomy 13. So many things are are wrong (laughs) and fragile. Um, uh, That, but but not. I mean, she could have lived a long time longer, but she had 11 years of of life in a family that loved her. She, she drew out of all of us capacities for love that I absolutely did not know (laughs) were there. And, um, in every way she changed our family for the better. Mm. Uh, I don't know. Should I say in every way I want to be honest here? I mean, it was just really hard. And I think my, it took a huge toll on my sister and brother-in-law a lot of marriages don't survive these kind of experiences right. of raising these profoundly disabled children. Their marriage has has survived. They have just been incredibly faithful to one another and to their kids. Um, it hasn't been easy, but it's been so good to be embedded in that level of vulnerability. Right. Well, and it seems like there were so many layers of people and community invested in enabling this flourishing to happen this yes this is the only way you do it like (laughs) uh and it's really it's really true for being human like all of us are amazingly vulnerable you know Mm. some of us can construct kind of impressions of independence but we are all 100 percent of the time we are depending on one another in Mm. profound ways and um, when you have a human being who can't even create that kind of facade of independence, it draws out this capacity to care that is quite amazing. And so, you know, for example, in the local school in the small town in New Hampshire where my sister lives, the decision was made that because Angela would not progress cognitively, that she would that as she grew each year, she would actually stay with, I think it was the kindergarten class. Mm-hmm. So there were maybe six years, I guess, of kindergartners for whom Angela was part of their kindergarten. Well, at Angela's funeral, all these kids were present who, for whom she had become a very important part of their experience. So like year after year, this whole school made her part of their Mm. life. There were these incredible collages of pictures of each year of kindergartners with Angela. Um, you know, and then you look at all the actual systems that government provides of uh, respite care and, and all the kinds of expertise of nutritionists and cardiologists and, uh, you know, all the specialties that have to come along um, and physical therapists. And you, know, you just can't imagine how many different things are needed. And yet this is actually how we're meant to live as human beings, is embedded in this web of caring and, and also of expertise that we develop different capacities that allow us to care for each other at moments of great vulnerability. That's the way it's meant to be. Wow. It's a staggering picture to me and just when you paint this picture of Angela, of just the total desolation that mm. it would seem her life would be and the, just the beauty that comes out of that. And yep. um, one of the things that you've said in your new book, Strong and Weak, is that flourishing is not the property of an individual at all. And exactly. that's exactly what <laughs> this journey with Angela over the last 11, 12 years seems to illustrate and um, so much of what you're explaining about the use of power and justice and authority yeah. and um, the isolation is what 
drives toward the degradation. Yes. Um, whereas the community and the coming together and investing together and sacrificing together, that that's what opens up the exponential bounds of yeah. kind of the creativity that you're talking about, yes. the, the flourishing. And, and tremendous creativity is needed in moments of great vulnerability. In, in other words, there's no script hmm. for Trisomy 13 kids uh, because their needs are so profound and so multifaceted. There's, there's no simple technical solution you can implement. There's, there's no manual for this. Right. Everyone involved, the doctors, the parents, the siblings, the extended family, the neighbors, it, and it has to constantly be creating, kind of paying very close attention to what's happening yeah. and then figuring out how can we make the most of this? What's the right response to this? Mm. And it draws forth from us resources we didn't know we had. Right. Um, and, and that's why I think we were always meant to be vulnerable in a way. Vulnerability is not the problem <laughs> in human <laughs> life. Um, it's, it's, it's really isolation. Uh, isolation from one another and from God is when vulnerability turns toxic. And, and then those of us who have access start to like try to, in violent ways or in forceful ways, grab from the world what we feel like we need to protect ourselves. Um, but the way it was always meant to be was in relationship with one another. We would be very vulnerable, but we would also be able to create what we needed to provide for one another and for our own needs. And that's what a healthy society is like. That's what a healthy community does. That's what a healthy family does. And that's what God meant for all, all of his creation. My goodness. Well, that was Andy Crouch in conversation with Bethany Wang. I hope you enjoyed these little snippets a little bit more with Eugene Cho and Andy. I'd love to know what you think about it. If you like this show, we could do more of them. You can find us on social media, Facebook and Twitter. Both of them are New Activist Is, all one word, New Activist Is. The New Activist, as always, is presented by International Justice Mission. IJM is working to end slavery in our lifetime and won't stop until all are free. IJM invites you to the global prayer gathering that is happening March 3rd and 4th in Washington, D.C. You can register now. Learn more about what that is at IJM.org. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Eugene Cho, as well as Andy Crouch, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends.